Good morning, good morning. My name is Stuart. I have the privilege of serving on staff here as one of the pastors. It is just wonderful to be with you here this morning, opening up God's word, hearing from him, being changed by him. What a great joy. Well, this morning we're going to be starting a new series, sort of. <laughs> starting a new series within our series of the Gospel of John. It's called, you can see it on the screens, Promise for pilgrims, it's got the subtitle, Blood-Bought Promises for Pilgrims on Their Way to the Promised Land. Here's why. John 14, we're going to be this morning, through John 17, has historically been known as the farewell discourse. That, that, that's fancy language for these are the last words of Jesus before, uh, to all of his disciples before he heads uh, to the cross and, uh, and his resurrection. These uh, chapters kind of represent the the last huddle with Jesus and his squad before he heads to the cross. And I think it's because of this that there is this, this, this concentration, this high concentration of promises that Jesus gives to his disciples. These are promises like the gifting of the Holy Spirit, promise of the Holy Spirit, promise of Jesus interceding for them. And all these promises have in view Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension to the Father. In other words, Jesus is guaranteeing these promises will happen based on his impending death, resurrection, and ascension. And that's why we call these blood-bought promises. These promises, just like all the promises of God, find their, their yes and their amen in Jesus and what he accomplished in his person and work. Now, the, these promises are for pilgrims. That is a, an appropriate way for Christians to describe themselves. These, these promises are for pilgrims on their way to the promised land. That, that is also an appropriate way for Christians to describe where they're, where, they're held, where they're headed. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Christians are described as exiles, exiles in a, in a foreign land. This, this is not their home. Doug and I want to intentionally frame these chapters, 14 through 17, so that we'll, we'll uniquely see these words, these last words of Jesus to his disciples. And, and we want those who would describe themselves as pilgrims on the way to the promised land to see that these promises are for them too. All right, let's, let's look. John 14. John 14. That's where, this, uh, where we are this morning. If you picked up a, a blue Bible or a red Bible, the blue is 901, and I just learned recently that we have like two versions of the red Bible, so there's like two different page numbers, so it's either 1070 or 1146. What did John 14? Uh, also, if you picked up one of those Bibles and you do not have a Bible, please take that with you. That is our gift to you. <clears throat> John 14. Starting with verse one. We're looking at one through 14 this morning. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Oh, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. It is enough for us. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. Or, or else, believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than, he, uh, uh, than, greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Have you ever been uh, anxious or fearful or distressed? Uh, let, me, let, me, uh, let me ask you this way. Do you have a pulse? <laughs> of course, we, we've all experienced these things. And if you call yourself a Christian, a pilgrim on the way to the promised land, then, then there's some sweet promises in this passage for you this morning. Jesus is calling you and I to replace fear with faith based on two blood-bought promises. You see, the disciples were deeply troubled. Just moments before this, and we, we spoke about this last Sunday, they, they witnessed one of their own Judas being called out as the betrayer of Jesus. And, and, and then what's more, Jesus says that, they, that he will be leaving them and they cannot go to where he is going. And then if that wasn't enough, they, they hear that Peter's faith will fail and he will deny Jesus three times. In, in other words, Jesus is saying, I, I'm leaving you and you're not even able to make it through the night without me. Their, their rabbi, their, their Lord is about to leave them and they're, they're troubled to the very core of their being. But notice, notice this, that, that on the night when there was far more for Jesus to be troubled with, the, the cross loomed large in front of him and, and on the night where it would have been much more appropriate for the disciples to be encouraging Jesus, Jesus, knowing, knowing that his disciples were, were hopelessly troubled, Jesus encourages them. The, the profound love and care of the Savior is on display in this passage. Take notice. Verse one, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Now some translations, maybe, maybe yours, have you believe in God where the ESV, what I'm preaching out of, says believe in God. Now I'm holding this loosely, but based on the context, it sure seems like the disciples are, are struggling with trusting in God, right? So if we, we take that plus 
plus I'm cheating here with the original, the original Greek, if we take these two things, I don't think that Jesus is, is making some sort of statement of fact, you believe in God. Rather, Jesus is telling them to, to do what they are not doing, trust in God. And then look, Jesus isn't telling them to just stop it. Rather, Jesus is calling them to something better. Jesus is calling them to replace fear with faith, faith in God and faith in himself. Now, two things we need to note high level about this passage before we look at the promises. Two things. One, the father is overwhelmingly brought up. One theologian has called this passage the, the father sermon. All throughout this section, the father is given primacy. In fact, 15 times in these 12 verses, Jesus directs our gaze to the father. Two, the two promises that Jesus gives us are related to his leaving the disciples. And, and this, makes, this makes perfect sense as we think about it because the disciples are troubled because Jesus is leaving them. And so Jesus wants to assure them that it's actually to their benefit that he leaves. In other words, he's saying, don't, don't be afraid that I'm leaving, but have faith because my going is actually to your benefit. In fact, what we'll see is that Jesus is going, that in Jesus is going, he will be able to promise them many great and glorious things that are meant to actually bolster their faith. So with that, if we do a scan of this passage, we'll see that the first promise comes up in verses uh, 2 through 11, specifically verses 2 through 4. There we read that Jesus explains that his going is to prepare a place for his disciples in the Father's house. And in his going, there's this sweet promise that he gives. And then the second promise actually comes in the last few verses, 12 through 14. Here again, Jesus speaks about his going, and again, there's a promise born out of that. So this passage, Jesus calls his disciples to replace fear with faith based on two blood-bought promises of Jesus. Let's, let's look. Promise number one. In verses two through 11, again, specifically two through four, we find the first promise, and we could say it like this. This is in your, your sermon notes there. Replace fear with faith because Jesus promises eternal life with him in the Father's house. In verse one, Jesus calls the disciples to replace fear with faith. And then starting in verse two, he gives grounds for why they should have faith. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? All right, now, look, this is, this is not about a physical house. This is not about physical rooms or, or mansions. Jesus is using earthly concepts to display spiritual realities. In heaven, that is where God permanently dwells, Jesus is saying that there is ample space for all those who are trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. All right, and check this. Heaven is also not in shambles. And in need of Jesus to go prepare a place by, by cleaning it or, or decorating it or, or, or the like. One commentator well says, the term going has in mind the final journey of the mission of the Son. The cross, resurrection, 
and ascension to the Father is the preparation. In fact, in Matthew 25, 34, we read, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see, in one very real sense, the Father's house and, and all of its space was prepared for believers before the foundation of the world. And, and yet, in another very real sense, the means or way of access to be in the presence of holy God has not yet been prepared. Sin has not yet been atoned for. God's wrath has not yet been satisfied. And death has not yet been defeated. But soon, but soon all will per be perfectly accomplished. And the veil that once stood up as the keep out sign that said stop will be torn in two. And in its place will be Jesus, the welcome sign that says come. What we're seeing here is a picture of the second coming of Jesus. See, Jesus tells his disciples that it is better for him to go and accomplish their salvation through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And then he says in verse three, and if I go and prepare a place for you, and here's the promise, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am going, you may be also. Listen, the, the great and glorious purpose behind all that Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection was to bring us to God. Or to say it another way, the, the purpose in Jesus dying on the cross for your sins was not to bring you to a place, but was to bring you to a person. Eternal fellowship with God is the blood-bought promise, and it was secured as it was secured in Jesus' going to the Father by way of his cross. Talk more about the promise in a minute. Jesus finishes, verse four, and you know the way to where I'm going. And of course, this, this statement prompts Thomas to make a statement and ask a question. Here goes Thomas. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And of course, Jesus famously responds, verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, much, much ink has been spilt on this magnificent claim of Jesus. And I, and I think to say too much would be to take away from what is supposed to be clear and simple. Just, just two things. This exclusive claim of Jesus is that no one comes to the Father, that's the where, but for this one exception, through Jesus. You see, Jesus defines exactly what the way is, and it's not a what, 
It's a who. Jesus himself is the singular way to the Father. And if we think about it, what grace that God would even provide a way. I mean, listen, God would be perfectly just in keeping all sinners enemies to his throne out of his holy home, but that God provides a way, the way. <laughs> it's grace. It's grace beyond measure. The way to where Jesus is going is the way taken by faith in what Jesus accomplished in his sinless life, his substitutionary death on a cross, and his victorious resurrection from the grave. Jesus is the way to where he is going. Jesus is the way to eternal fellowship with him in the Father's house. Now, having just mentioned the Father who is in heaven, Jesus, Jesus goes on to say in verse seven, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse eight, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It is enough for us. Let's do a quick rewind back to the book of Exodus. If you recall, maybe in the recesses of your mind, as a consequence of the people's sin of worshiping the golden calf, God said that he would not go with them into the promised land. He would actually send an angel before them. Well, based on God's covenant promises, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and asks the Lord to still come with his covenant people. Again, based on his promises, God agrees. And then in verse 18, Moses says, please show me your glory. Let me see you. You see, Moses desired an assuring and comforting vision of God before he made his way into the promised land. Now let's, let's fast forward back to our account. Philip doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, but like Moses before him, Philip desires an assuring and comforting vision of God before he too makes his way to the promised land where Jesus is going. Jesus responds, starting in verse nine. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Six times, Jesus practically says the same thing. And, and the crux of what he's communicating to Philip is that he and the Father are one. In other words, Jesus is telling Philip, if you want an assuring and comforting vision of the Father, look at me and believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Okay. Let's, let's meditate on the promise and let's seek to apply it. Here it is again. I, I go and prepare a place for you and here's the promise. 
I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am going, you may be also. Gosh, we, we live in a fallen and broken world and, and trouble, it abounds. In a large part, we can relate to how the disciples were feeling. Their, their whole world was about to be turned up, upside down and they were afraid. It's like when you get the health scare or the sudden diagnosis that just causes your world to flip. Or, or maybe when you've got that, that ongoing mysterious ailment that's not diagnosed and yet it's still very real. Or maybe it's when the contract runs out and you're let go and the, the bills start piling up. Or, or maybe it's when you've been betrayed by a friend or, or family member. It's in these times that we can certainly at least be tempted, but can feel abandoned by Jesus and give in to fear like the disciples did. Jesus has something better for us. Jesus may be departing, but his going, that is his death and resurrection and ascension, is for the ultimate purpose of securing the promise of eternal fellowship and communion with God. I mean, what, what, an, what an encouraging promise for these disciples in light of what they were experiencing. They had actually been with Jesus, and he was leaving them. They were troubled that they'd be left behind alone. But paradoxically, Jesus encourages them to have faith because in his leaving, he promises that he will return for them and they will be with him forever in the Father's trouble-free house. I mean, think more about their situation. They would be soon kicked out of the temple the earthly temporary dwelling space of God, they would soon be kicked out for being followers of Jesus. And then Jesus tells them, I'm gonna be leaving too. So to hear that there was ample space for them in the Father's permanent dwelling space, <laughs> what, what encouragement, what comfort. And hearing about the Father's house should have also jarred their imaginations to consider that they were, they were his adopted children and he was their father. And what's more, it's not that they were merely just gonna be in the house. No, they were gonna be with him. They're gonna be with Jesus in the presence of God in eternal fellowship forever. And no doubt thinking about Jesus' words, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter four, before he tells the Philippians to do not be anxious, but pray, reminds them that the Lord is at hand. He says, the Lord is at hand, do not be anxious, but pray. Now what Paul is trying to do in saying the Lord is at hand He's trying to communicate two truths. One is that Jesus is near positionally. It's as if you could just reach out your hand and you could touch him. The creator of the universe is right, is right there. The other truth is, is that Jesus' return is imminent. 
His return is near. And all that is wrong will be set right and he will take his disciples with him. And there will be no more trouble. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. You see, the encouragement for those who are anxious, Paul says that we need to have these two truths about the Lord is at hand working in our hearts and minds before we ever attempt to obey. Do not be anxious, but pray. Jesus is encouraging all of God's people to replace fear with faith by the blood-bought promise of eternal fellowship with him forever. The question for each and every one of us who calls themselves a Christian, though, is, is it encouraging to think that you will be with God forever? Peter would later say, for Christ also suffered once for all, uh, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. The blood-bought promise of Jesus is that we will enjoy eternal fellowship with him in the Father's house forever. But the question is, does this encourage you? It's supposed to, but does it? In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper says this. Get ready for this one. People who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The Gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. The Gospel is a way to get people to God. The Gospel is a way of overcoming every sinful obstacle to everlasting joy in God. Purpose in Jesus accomplishing all the many great and glorious things that he accomplished was to bring us to God. Jesus is calling us to replace fear with faith because Jesus promises eternal fellowship with him in the Father's house forever. Maybe you're going through something deeply troubling right now. You feel as though Jesus is, is or has abandoned you and you're fearful. If that's you, can I let you know that you're not alone. You are in good company with people who need to be told this, this sweet thing by Jesus. He is calling us to replace fear with faith because he promises eternal fellowship with him in the Father's house forever. And, and listen, what's more, because of his going, we'll hear about this next week, Jesus, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit and he lives within you right now. Jesus will never leave you. He will always be with you. He will never forsake you. And what's more, he will come back for you and set everything that's wrong right, and you will dwell with him forever in the house of the Lord. Promise one, let's look at promise two. Follow along with me as I reread verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these 
will he do? Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, now remember, we know that another promise is found here because the two promises that Jesus gives in this passage are related to his leaving the disciples. And we see that theme picked back up at the end of verse 12 when Jesus says, I'm going to the Father. That's our clue. There's a promise here. Now, verses 12 through 14 flow out of what Jesus had just said about his own works at the end of verse 11. And so very intentionally, not by accident, Jesus says in verse 12, and what we're going to do is we're just going to go through 12 through 14, unpack it as we go. Verse 12, whoever believes in me, this is Jesus reminding them once again to replace fear with faith. Whoever believes in me will, and here's the first promise of participation, will also do the works that I do. And here's the second promise of participation. Greater works than these he will do because, here's the reason, here's the grounds for their promised participation, because I am going to the Father. And then in verse 13, we hear about the empowerment for their promised participation, and it too is born out of Jesus going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In other words, Jesus says, because, of, because I am going to the Father, by way of the cross and the resurrection and ascension, I promise that whoever believes in me will not only participate in the works that I do, but will do even greater works. And what's more, because I'm going to the Father through prayer, I will empower your participation in these works. Way, way back at the end of chapter two, we have this little nugget that says, Jesus knows what's in the heart of people. He is God. Jesus knows what's in the heart of these disciples. They don't have to say a thing. He knows exactly what the disposition of their soul is. And this is no accident that he talks more about the works that they have and will be called to do here. This is intentional. This is more care from the Savior. He knows their hearts. Jesus is leaving and he knows that they're fearful of being alone and having to do the work that he has called them to and will call them to in greater and clearer ways in the future. You see, Jesus has already called them to follow him and be fishers of men. Earlier in John, he said for them to look up and see that the fields are white for harvest. In other words, those are people ripe to hear the gospel. Go and proclaim it. And Jesus will unequivocally call them to go and make disciples. And similar to the Great Commission, see at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus, the one who has all authority and on heaven and on earth, promises to be with them, empowering them as they go and make disciples. Jesus here too is promising them empowered participation in his works so that they will replace fear with faith. 
All right, there, there's some things that we probably need to clear up, though, about these verses before we seek to apply. What are the greater works, and does all of this to apply to us now or not? What, what are the greater works? There are effectively three options for what these greater works are. They are either greater in power, extent, or both. Power, extent, or both. Those are our options for what do these greater works mean. Are they greater in power? Are they greater in extent? Or both? One commentator, extremely helpful. Uh, on the screens, yep. Quick look at the context of greater works in John's gospel will show that greater works is not about power. In John 5.20, towards the end of that verse, Jesus speaks of how he will be shown greater works and then goes on to define these greater works as the giving of life and judgment in order that all may honor the Son. Likewise, in John 6, 28, the works of God are defined as belief in the one he has sent. And in John 9, 3, in verse 39, his work is seen as salvation and judgment. He concludes, these greater works in 14.12 point not to greater signs, but to the proclamation of the gospel, conversion, and judgment. This will achieve life far greater in far greater numbers of people than Jesus was ever able to reach during his earthly ministry. I mean, listen, we have accounts of the apostles doing the same works, uh, the miraculous signs of Jesus, raising the dead, casting out demons, etc. but they never did more powerful works than Jesus, never did more powerful works than Jesus. So the apostles did do works like Jesus, but, but listen, when the apostolic era ended, it sure seems like the miraculous signs ended too. Now, we just heard Bob Glon, missionary, come in about a month ago, come in and say that, that he's, he has witnessed and experiences instance of healing overseas that was used to bring people to faith in Christ. So I'm not I'm just trying to put God in the box. I'm saying that the regular pattern of what we see, not only borne out throughout the New Testament, but throughout church history, is that at the end of the apostolic area, it sure seems like the miraculous sign gifts ceased. But listen. The greater works here, and the greater works that we get to participate into as well, are the greater works of extent to which the proclamation of the gospel will go and go further than it did in Jesus' earthly ministry. And in fact, we see this greater work happen immediately after Jesus ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit comes down. When after Peter proclaims the gospel in about 3,000 from a multitude of nations were saved. And then, of course, we see this greater work continue on into the New Testament with the advance of the gospel to people in places that Jesus never reached. And, and, of, course, and of course, we see these greater works happening even today because Jesus promised that they would because he went to the Father by way of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. Now, just a few brief thoughts about verses 13 and 14. <laughs> these verses are often misused and abused. So let, let's talk about these two verses for a second. <clears throat> As we've already said, these verses are about the empowerment 
for how the disciples will carry out their participation in the greater works of, that Jesus promised them to do. We gotta see these in the right context. They are primarily about the empowerment that the disciples will receive to actually carry out the promised, participation, the promised participation in Jesus's works. And that empowerment is through prayer. I think most of us would, would expect that we'd be talking about the Holy Spirit here right now. And certainly the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, is in view and it most certainly will come next week. But here it is clear that the empowerment is through prayer. Guys, this is, this is instructive. Let's think about this for a second. This is instructive. The, the, first, the first words of Jesus, after he articulates the, the promise of participation, he teaches about prayer. He teaches about prayer. Prayer is submission to God in the person of Christ, and prayer is the empowerment for service to God in the mission of Christ. Later this afternoon, this week, check out Acts 9, towards the end, we see Peter raising Tabitha from the dead. Maybe you recall, maybe you don't. Here's what he does. He prays. He prays. He asked Jesus to do what only Jesus can do. And if we are going to be empowered in our participation in the great commission of going and making disciples and proclaiming the gospel, we must pray and ask Jesus to do what only he can do in bringing dead spiritual people to life in Christ. We must pray and ask him to do these things. Jesus does not say, whatever you ask, this I will do. No, no, no. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. One commentator, helpful again. Since the concept of a name in the ancient world is the character of a person, by asking in the name of Jesus, the disciples are seeking not themselves but Christ and their prayer is to be in accordance with all that that name stands for. Listen, to pray in the name of Jesus is not to sort of spew out some sort of magical mantra that you say and then you get whatever you want. To pray in Jesus' name is to pray in accordance with the holy character and perfect will of Christ. Those are the prayers that Jesus is eager to answer. That leads me to the last observation here. Jesus is eager to answer these type of prayers in his name because the result is that the Father is glorified. All right, let's, let's consider application of the promise and then we'll close. The promise of empowered participation in Jesus' works is meant not only to encourage the disciples right there that Jesus was speaking to, to replace fear with faith, but it's also meant to encourage us to replace fear with faith as we consider our own participation in Jesus' works. But, but let's consider a moment the uniqueness of the disciples' situation for just a second Jesus had physically been with them. 
That's the different part. Jesus was with them. And when they had a question or they had a problem, all they had to do was this, Jesus. That's all they had to do. He was right there. Think about it. The creator of the universe was right there and all you had to do was ask. And now he was going. Where would they turn? Where would they seek the help that they would so desperately need? What a fearful thought. One kind of way to get um, uh, a little glimpse is think about the first time that you left, you left home for, for good and you ran into problems. The type of help that you could receive from either the, the friends that you used to be around or certainly from your parents was very, very different now. More often than not, you were having to figure out things on your own. What, what's more, when I, when I was talking with, with Doug about this, um, he, he mentioned that even after he left home, still, he would still call his dad whenever there was big, significant issues, and he would get wisdom from him until he passed. And he couldn't even pick up the phone then and get the help that he needed. Jesus knew his disciples were fearful of being left and having to participate in his work without them. So Jesus promises to empower them through prayer for participation in his works. In other words, they will not be alone. Paradoxically, because Jesus left them, they could now turn to Jesus no matter where they were. Wherever they were fulfilling his promised participation in his works, they could turn to him and access the help they so desperately needed. Before they had to be in his physical location to get the help. Oh, but now, now it didn't matter where they were. They could get the help that they needed to fulfill their calling. If you call yourself a pilgrim on your way to the promised land, you too have been promised empowered participation in the work of Christ for the glory of God the Father. You don't have to be fearful at that thought. You can replace fear with faith knowing that Jesus will empower you through prayer. The next time that you're in the evangelistic opportunity and you can, you can witness to that friend or that coworker and you are just gripped with, oh, I don't know what to say. What will they think of me? This is just gonna go really bad. You're not alone. You can pray. Jesus wants to help you and he has the help that you so desperately need. He has the help that we so desperately need. Jesus promises us Empowered participation. Empowered participation through prayer to the glory of God the Father. And we, we do live in a troubled, a world full of trouble. Disciples were troubled. They were fearful in Jesus. He knew it. And in caring for them, he he called his disciples to replace fear with faith based on two blood-bought promises. The promise of eternal fellowship with him in the Father's house and the promise of empowered participation in his works that bring glory to the Father. Let's pray.
Well, how thankful we are, Heavenly Father, that these, these words, these promises would be here, Father, that we could enjoy them, be encouraged by them. I pray, would you give us grace to, to do just that, to sweetly enjoy the promises that Jesus bought at the cross. Would we be encouraged? Yes, we live in a world full of trouble, but Jesus has promised that we will have eternal fellowship with him forever. And yes, you have promised us participation, and it's a big deal. But you have not left us. Oh, we're so thankful that you have promised that you will give us empowered participation in these works. But you encourage us to pray, pray often, to intentionally pray as we are considering even the thought of, of witnessing to others, but certainly when we're in the midst of it. Oh, help us to pray. And Father, so much talk in a sermon about, about Jesus and what he accomplished in his his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand, to your right hand. Oh, we pray, Father, that for those that would not call themselves pilgrims on the way to the promised land, that would you, would, you, would you save them? Would you give them grace to consider the great and glorious news of the gospel? Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.